Welcome to All Nations once again. Uh, my name is David. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. Uh, it's a joy uh, to see everyone. Um, as we continue our worship, if we can, open up your Bibles or your apps to Exodus chapter 12. And we're going to read verses 29 through 42. Uh, for the past several months, we've been in the ten plagues uh, that God sent on Egypt. And I know a lot of us were kind of uh, plagued out by this point. Uh, just walking through each and every one of these uh, amazing Acts of God. Uh, but what, we, what we're learning through these plagues is the holy character of God, his power, but also his amazing grace and his mercy. And so there's so much that I've learned uh, through this series. And if you're just joining us and you're curious about the meaning of all those plagues, uh, you know, you can find those uh, messages on the podcast. So please go ahead and take advantage of that. Uh, what we see in each plague is God increasing the severity and the devastation uh, towards Pharaoh and to Egypt. And the whole point is for him to show who he is as the one true God, but also to redeem and rescue his people from slavery. Uh, they've been enslaved. The Israelites have been enslaved for 430 years. And God is wanting to redeem his people to make them his own possession so that they can be who God has called them to be. And so now we're at the final plague, the 10th plague, and this is uh, the plague that is going to get Pharaoh to change his mind, to actually give in to God's demand, and he will release uh, God's people. And so let's give our full attention as I read God's holy word, starting at verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon. And all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, and he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also." The Egyptians were urgent with the, uh, with the people to send them out of the land in haste. But they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry for and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians." And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt. For it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years at the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. This is God's word. You know, many in our culture, uh, what we're seeing actually in the landscape of Christianity are prominent figures actually leaving the faith. I don't know if you guys have heard of Joshua Harris the famous author who wrote I Kiss Dating Goodbye, he has renounced his faith. 
uh, another individual, Marty Sampson, who was one of my heroes growing up. He was the face of Hillsong music at one point. A lot of the songs that we sing come from Hillsongs. He's considering leaving the faith. Uh, and, and what they're struggling with uh, is oftentimes passages like this. Uh, the idea of God condemning and God even killing firstborns is, is unimaginable, unthinkable. And so what a lot of people do, and actually a lot of well-meaning Christians do, is they say, that's not my God. The Old Testament God is not the God that I worship. I worship the New Testament God. Uh, now, obviously, there is a, <laughs> uh, a problem with that. Because if you divide a scripture like that, you're going to get a truncated faith, an incomplete faith. What we have in this 10th plague, yes, is the terrifying holiness of God. But at the same time, the glory of God. And that's what I want us to see today. We don't want to see God of the Old Testament as being separate from the God of the New Testament. Actually, we won't be able to understand God's grace and his mercy and the gospel truth without looking at who God is in the Old Testament. And again, in this last and tenth play, we'll see the character of God on full display. And it is through this plague that God actualizes the Israelites' redemption. And so there are three truths that I want us to see and learn from this passage about redemption. The first truth is this. Redemption comes at a great cost. The second truth is this. In redemption, there is a great gain. And lastly, redemption is a start of a great journey. So the first truth, redemption comes at a great cost. Egypt has already paid an enormous price for Pharaoh's stubbornness, for his hardened heart. Their land, their homes were destroyed. There are all these annoyances and inconveniences. And even they pay the cost of their own health as God sent plagues to boils upon their skins. But all these plagues didn't get the job done. Pharaoh's heart still remained hardened. But now, with this last plague, Pharaoh is going to give in. And this 10th plague was actually very unique. God had a very specific target, right? He, he, he singled out the firstborns of Egypt. Verse 29 again. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. And the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of their livestock. It's so unique. God is singling out firstborns. Now, I shared this about me before. Um, my dad was the fifth child in his family, uh, but he has four older sisters. Uh, and so my dad was the, the, the golden child, the son, Right? My grandparents desperately wanted a son, so they went through four daughters to get my dad. Um, I am the firstborn in my family, but I am a middle child. Uh, I have an older sister and a younger brother. So my position is a little bit weird. Um, so I like to say as, as a middle child, firstborn son, I'm awkward, but I'm privileged. Right? Right? In the Korean family, to have a son carries a lot of weight. Why? Because you can carry on the legacy of the family, right, in the last name. Right? And so I was beloved by my grandparents and my fa uh, uh, all my relatives from my dad's side of the family. They loved me. 
See, the firstborn in the ancient East carried an enormous amount of value and worth. The firstborn had important responsibilities. The firstborn son would get double the inheritance. The firstborn, if the father passed away, he would then take, uh, uh, be the head of the household. And this was how valuable the firstborn son was in the time of Moses. To have a firstborn son meant your family was blessed and there was hope for the future. Now in the 10th plague, God took away then the hope, the security, and the blessings of the family. Now you may ask, why such a severe punishment? Why kill all the firstborns? Now at this point, we've got to take a step back and look at the entire story of Egypt, Pharaoh, and Israelites. Because when we, when we do that, we see that this punishment was with, uh, wasn't without warrant. Our Pharaoh, in fear of the Israelites growing in population, what did he demand? What did he command? He said, every son that was born by an Israelite, throw him in the Nile River. Now many of those sons were probably firstborns of Israel's family. And this, this amazing act of just hatred that Pharaoh committed. What God is doing here is he's taking vengeance on his own people. He's getting justice for what Pharaoh did. And in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 22, this is what God tells Moses to say to Pharaoh. Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn. See, Israel was God's firstborn. And that means that Israel was the nation chosen by God to represent him, to be a symbol of blessing. And they were to bless others. They were to display God's glory to the nations. But Pharaoh prevented this by commanding and demanding all the firstborn sons to be thrown in the Nile. And so then God makes this promise in Exodus 4.23. And I say to you, let my son go that they may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn. Now, this was a prophecy, a promise made in the early stages of this power struggle between God and Pharaoh. And at this moment, God made true on his promise. And Pharaoh paid the ultimate price, the death of his own firstborn, before he released Israel. But another reason why this tenth plague is so unique is because when you look at the other previous nine plagues, God made a distinction between Israel and Egypt. He would guard and protect Israel from the plagues that he sent. But in this tenth plague, this plague will not discriminate. The angel of death will not discriminate between Egypt and Israel. The angel of death will visit all people in Egypt at that time. The angel of death will visit every single household. And that's a problem for the Israelites. Because Israel too would have to pay a cost in order to escape God's holy judgment. Now this is curious, right? If, if God saw Israel as his own firstborn and he, you know, Israel was chosen and so precious before his sight, why wouldn't God then protect Israel from the angel of death? We have to answer that question. Why subject Israel to this plague? 
Now, this is a very sobering reminder for the Israelites. Because they too, even though they were chosen by God, had to stand before the holy judgment of God. See, although slavery was a great burden on the Israelites, a greater burden and the greater weight that was hanging over Israel was God's holy judgment towards sin and sinners. See, the greatest threat wasn't slavery in Egypt. The greatest threat was rather their sins. And the truth is, sinners cannot hope to stand in the presence of a perfect and holy God. See, redemption is not simply about physical freedom. It's not about physical enslavement, but rather redemption means freedom from God's holy judgment towards sin. See, ultimate redemption is not physical in nature. Ultimate redemption is spiritual and relational. See, the greatest threat in our lives is not another recession, which many people are worried about, is not bankruptcy, is not getting laid off, is not even physical suffering and death. That is not the greatest threat in our lives. The greatest threat is our sins and God's holy judgment and wrath towards sinners. And so Israel was not safe from that. And that is why the angel of death passed, I mean, visited every single one of the households. See, God being just simply cannot let sin go unpunished. He needs his justice satisfied. If not, then he would not be a good and just God. If he just turned a blind eye towards sin, if he turned a blind eye towards mass murdering and mass killings, he will not be just. So he needs his justice satisfied, which means then, that there was a price that needed to be paid as well, a cost to Israel's redemption to escape death. Right, the 10th plague tells us the devastating consequences of sin, and it brings about death. The only appropriate payment for our sins is our lives. The wages of sins is death. And so God demands life for Israel's sins and for Egypt's sins. So the question then is, how were the Israel, Israel's firstborns spared if they too were sinful? How were, they, how were they able to bypass the angel of death? It too cost them a life. But it's, instead of their firstborn, the life of a lamb. God told his people, take a young lamb without blemish, sacrifice it, take its very blood, and spread it on the doorpost of each of your house, and therefore the angel of death will pass. Exodus 12, verse 13, The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I'll pass over, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. See, seeing the blood, the angel of death would pass over. Blood is a sacred symbol of life, is it not? God in the Passover provided a substitute life, a life for a life. So the angel of death, seeing the blood, knowing that a death occurred in that household, will say, okay, I can pass over. And the firstborn would be spared in those households. So the only di difference between Pharaoh and Israel was mercy. 
Was it not? Pharaoh got what he deserved because he resisted God. Israel got what they didn't deserve. And that is the very definition of mercy. See, but if you look at Pharaoh, if you look at the Israelites, you're not going to see much of a difference. They're both very sinful. Both are very idolatrous. Both rebel against God. The only difference is God decided to show Israel mercy by providing a substitute. So here's the amazing glory of the Exodus story. Because God cannot extend mercy at the expense of his justice. Because then he will not be good. And he will not be just. Right? So God doesn't, save ex, uh, God doesn't save Israelites at the expense of his justice. But he actually spares them through justice by providing another life to take the place of the firstborns. God pays the payment. He pays the cost of Israel's sins. And that is the glory of this amazing Exodus story. See, brothers and sisters, redemption was costly because God's justice requires payment for sin. Pharaoh paid the ultimate price by the death of his son, but Israel was spared by the death of a lamb. So although redemption was very costly, what we also see in redemption is a great gain. Verse 35, the people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold, jewelry, and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Now God prophesied about this actually in Genesis 15. When he was making a covenant with Abraham, he made this prophecy. Your people, your descendants, descendants will be enslaved for 400 years. But then when they leave, because God is going to judge that nation, but when you leave, you're going to leave with amazing possessions and wealth. Look it up for yourself later, Genesis 15. But again, God prophesies about this early on in Exodus. You're going to go to your enemy, the Egyptians, ask for their stuff, and they're going to give it to you. This act of plundering, right, is an act that follows a victorious triumph from battle. After the enemy is defeated, you go in and you, you just take for yourself the spoils of war. And this is actually quite violent. This idea of plundering is violent. But what God is doing here is, is peaceful. It's, 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 uh, it's weird. You got to imagine this, okay? Imagine. Put yourself in the Israelite's position. For months and months, God has sent these plagues, destroying their land and destroying their, their livelihood. And so then God tells the Israelites to go to their Egyptian neighbors and ask for all their stuff. Give me your silver, give me your gold, give me your clothing. Like my personality, I, I hate even asking for refunds. Like I just dread that. So I always ask, I, Jane has no problem doing this. I, Jane, can you return this for me? Right, if I get, if a wrong order of food comes, I don't, I don't, I won't ask for it, you know, a different order. I'll just eat it. That's my personality, right? I just get, you know, my hands get sweaty thinking about returns. <laughs> but what's happening here is, is, is crazy. Go to the very people that you, that God, your God has been just punishing and punishing and go to their homes and ask for all their jewelry. It's ridiculous. What's going on here? 
Why, why, why this? God is trying to show the Israelites, I'm the one who accomplishes redemption. I single-handedly am doing this for you. I'm going to give favorable sight to the Egyptians so that they will just give it to you. God is wanting to show us that redemption is his activity. He will accomplish it by his own power. And he will give favor to the sight of their enemies. And so they leave Egypt with great wealth. But not only do we see the Israelites walking away with gold, silver, and clothes, we see that God added to their numbers, right, in verse 38, a mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. This idea of a mixed multitude means that it wasn't just Jews that left. It wasn't just the Israelites. It were, there were foreigners, maybe mixed in with some Egyptians who heard of this and saw the amazing act of God. And they too wanted to worship this God. So they left with the Israelites to believe in Yahweh. See, in redemption, God not only takes back his people from the grip of Pharaoh, but then he assures them of their chosen identity by blessing them abundantly with possessions and more people. He's wanting to tell them, you are no longer a slave. You are now my son. That is why there's a great gain in redemption. See, here in America, we, we, we celebrate Freedom. There's like a premium on freedom. And actually a lot of us, we take it for granted. But in this past year, for some reason, God has bringing, been bringing people into my life that actually has, have gone through the, the criminal justice system. Um, I, I had an opportunity to build a relationship with an ex-convict. He was in prison for nine years. And so I asked him questions about, you know, isn't all that you thought about was just, just you know, getting out of there? Isn't your mind just about just getting released and freedom? And, and so, yeah, that is true. But he was telling me stories about other people. See, freedom is, is not what it's all, all meant out to be, actually, for those in prison. There's actually a lot of fear and anxiety coming out. And that is what I've learned through these conversations. Because it actually really depends. It depends on what's waiting for you outside of prison. Do you have a support system? Are you going to get an opportunity to work? Are you going to have a house? Are you going to have a car to drive? Those are the more important things than, than, than just their freedom. So what often happens is with these ex-convicts, they have no one waiting for them. They have no opportunity. And they have no relationships. So what happens then? Freedom is, is terrifying. Because the goal of freedom is what? Reintegration. You want to be a citizen. You want to be functional. But without these things, what ends up happening is they commit another crime. And they actually would rather be in prison than to be free in this world. That is what I've learned. Israel has been enslaved for 430 years. That's all that they've known, the abuse, the oppression. And so for God just to release them into the world without this great gain, would be horrible, would it not? And that is why God blesses them abundantly. He's reminding them, you're not a slave. You are my precious firstborn. You are my son. And this blessing 
was an example of that. He, it's not just about release, brothers and sisters. It's about reintegration. It's about gain, gaining that identity in, in God as his beloved. God is reaffirming and reassuring that he is their God. And through this amazing, peculiar, and peaceful plundering that you are now mine. See, God's goal in redemption isn't for us to simply escape judgment, but to experience his blessings. Avoiding hell is not the objective of the Christian life. It is about entering into a relationship with God and becoming his children. There's one more truth that we need to learn about redemption. This is the last truth, that it's a great journey. See, throughout the plagues and even in their plundering, it's crystal clear that God plays the lead role in redemption. He is the one working and orchestrating everything and setting things up for the release of Israel. God alone is able to redeem, and that is so clear. But at the same time, we have to take a close look. Israel had a, play, had a role to play as well. God told them, by faith, take the lamb's blood and spread it on the doorpost. By faith, go to your neighbors and ask for their stuff. They had to do something, actually, as well. Yes, redemption is accomplished by God and him alone. But Israel needed to trust in God's provision and believe in his promises. And with each command that God gives them, he's wanting to grow their trust in him. See, that's what redemption is all about, brothers and sisters. It's about us believing and trusting in God. It's about relationship. See, the main struggle of Israel, as we're going to see, is that they fail to trust in God. And that actually is my greatest struggle in my faith. I'd rather trust in myself. I'd rather trust in my family. I'd rather trust in my abilities and my skills rather than trusting in God. And so what we do is we take matters into our own hands. We live, the, we live our lives the way that we want to live, thinking that we know better than God. Israel is going to fall under this just over and over again of failing to trust in God. But the reason why God gives us commands, the reason why God gives us his law, is because he wants to develop and cultivate trust in us, in him. And Israel is going to struggle over and over again. Because release from Egypt was part one. What is part two of their redemption? Entering into the promised land. That, that was their, their final, right? That's where, where God wanted to take them. Because in the promised land, they were able to be God's people fully, freely. But there's so much in the way of them getting from Egypt to the promised land. It was an 11-day journey. It took them 40 years. In the way was the Red Sea. In the way was the wilderness. In the way was the Canaanites who occupied the promised land that they had to overcome and destroy. There were so many obstacles. Why couldn't God just transport them from Egypt to the, to the, the promised land? Have you ever thought about that? Why go through this, all these different journeys? Because God wants to cultivate trust. It's not about the destination. It's about our devotion. Are you going to believe in me? That is what he's asking his people. And that's what he's asking us. 
And that is why God, even after redemption, he establishes all these rituals and these feasts. If you look at chapter 13, the feast of the unleavened bread, right? The consecration of the firstborn. Why do all these things? Because Israel forgets. And so God gives them all these amazing reminders, these very visual, sensual reminders that God is the one that redeems because they're going to forget. And brothers and sisters, we forget all the time. See, Israel, although redeemed, will now have to live as the redeemed. And this will prove to be extremely difficult. And that is why God establishes these rituals and these feasts to remind them, I redeemed you. It was me. So a great cost, a great gain, and a great journey. What does this mean for us? What does this look like for us today? See, the story of Exodus is just a precursor. It's a foretaste of a greater Exodus, a greater act of redemption that will come through Jesus Christ. See, whether we know it or not, whether we acknowledge it or not, we are all captives to sin. We are all held hostage to sin. We want to live our lives the way that we want to, outside of God's will, ignoring God, failing to acknowledge him. We are all sinners. We are all living in rebellion. And as a result, we all too stand condemned, guilty. And just as the angel of death visited Egypt in the 10th plague, Jesus is going to come back again. Not in the form of a baby. He's going to come back on a white horse. To do what? To judge all once and for all. That is a horrible idea. It's terrifying that God is going to come back and he's going to judge us all. And he's going to demand our very lives because that's the payment for our sins. But God did something amazing. In Jesus' first visit, he did something amazing. He provided a ransom, payment for our sins. He gave his life as a ransom for our sins. God gave up his firstborn, his son, to die on the cross, to be the ultimate substitute, to be the lamb, the great lamb without any blemish, so that when he spills his blood, his blood covers over our sins, and then we are forgiven and we are redeemed. Do you see it? Exodus is a precursor, a foretaste of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When John proclaims Jesus, behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God, the perfect substitute. To pay the ultimate price for my redemption, for your redemption. But not only that, just as Israel leaves Egypt with great riches, by faith we greatly gain in Jesus Christ. Not only does he absorb our debts and cancels our sins, but when he rises again, he gives us his perfect righteousness by faith. His perfect obedience to the law is now transferred to our record. So that when God sees you and me by faith, he sees his perfect son. No more sin, but perfect righteousness. He credits us his righteousness. And then we're co-heirs with Christ. We share in the inheritance of Christ that does not perish. This is the beauty of the gospel. 
He satisfies his justice by giving his son. And he gives us, he credits us his son's perfect righteousness. You are no longer a slave. You are a child of God. And for those here that aren't believers, maybe you're considering Christianity. My invitation to you and God's invitation to you is accept, receive the gift of grace. That's all you need to do, receive it. It's there for you. He sacrificed himself for you. And he freely gives himself to you. All you need to do is receive it by faith. Confess your sins. Acknowledge that you're a slave to sin. And he promises, if you place your trust in him, you'll be forgiven and you'll be reconciled. For those of us here who are Christians and you are redeemed, I want to remind us that redemption is the beginning of our journey. Our end is glorification. Glorification is the idea that when Jesus comes again, that we will physically resurrect perfect bodies, no more sin, no more pain, no more suffering. We are awaiting glorification, but between redemption and glorification, that middle part, that is where we're living right now. And it's not easy. It wasn't easy for Israel to get to the promised land. It's not going to be easy for us to get to glorification because there's so many trials. There's so many obstacles in the way. Our own sins, suffering, death, loss. How are we going to get from redemption to glorification? What are we going to do when difficulties come our way? See, what happens when we suffer is we're tempted, right? We're tempted to, to think that God is not for us. And a lot of us actually, when things don't go the way that we imagine, we go back to our slavish tendencies, do we not? We fall back into sin. We think that this world can satisfy those things. And so we fall into slavery. And many of us are there. Many of us are so discouraged. And you're barely journeying in your faith. So what are we to do then? If that's you today, what is, what is, what is the call for us today? The call is this, plunder. Plunder. When's the last time you plundered? See, the Christian life isn't a conquest or a crusade. Why? Because Jesus has already defeated our three greatest enemies, sin, Satan, and death. Done. He's won. Christianity is not a crusade. Christianity is a plundering expedition. There are riches to be had. Riches that is yet to be discovered by many of us. God is asking you and me to go and plunder. Discover the riches of God's amazing gifts in salvation. See, brothers and sisters, forgiveness is only one part of the treasures that God gives us. You know what else is there? Justification. Sanctification. Adoption, reconciliation, these are amazing treasures that many of us, we have not even accessed yet because we haven't plundered yet. My call and God's call to you is go and plunder. It's there for you to take and, and grab a hold of. See, Christianity is not about earning these things, but it's about obtaining these things because it's there for you. But so many of us Christians, we don't plunder we come to Sunday and we think that's, that's it. 
No. He gives us this. You know what plundering looks like? Reading the word. You read the word not to earn grace. You read the word to look and find grace. You don't go to community groups to lift, just check off a list so that, oh, I did my religious duty. You go to community groups because you will experience grace. You pray not to earn grace. You pray to experience it. It's there for you. Brothers and sisters, plunder. That is my plea. That is what God is asking us to do is plunder. You know, this past week, I took my daughter, my second daughter to uh, her to meet her teacher at preschool. There was an activity for us to do there. It was a list of things that were within the room. It was a scavenger hunt. It's very simple. Look for the bathroom, you check it off. Look for the play area, you check it off. Right? You look for her desk, her cubby, you check it off. Scavenger hunt. And I was thinking about it. The Christian life is like a scavenger hunt. God has provided everything for us. He's given us everything that we need. Go and find it. Do something. Not to earn grace, but to experience grace. That is my call. That is, that is what I think God is asking us to do. Brothers and sisters, God's charge is for you to go and plunder. Experience the spoils that Christ has won for us in his victory. And it's through discovering and experiencing these amazing treasures in Christ that will help us on our journey to glorification. Brothers and sisters, let's plunder for his glory and for our good. Let's pray. Father, I, I thank you. Um, I thank you for your love. I thank you for your grace. I thank you that you redeemed us. God, we were all enslaved. We were all captive to our own sins. We were held hostage. And we were standing under the, the condemnation of your, just, your justice and your judgment. God, I ask that you would help us to see the beauty of the cross. Help us to see how wonderful and amazing Christ is. And help us to live as a redeemed. And for those of us who have not yet received Christ, I pray that you would bring about faith. God, may you save today. Help us, Lord. Help us, Lord, to desire you more, desire you more than anything else. And God, as we seek out to plunder, to experience the full spoils of Christ, may you fill our hearts with gratitude and thanksgiving. Help us, Lord, to see ourselves not as slaves, but as your children. God, we give you all the praise, glory, and honor for our redemption. It's in Jesus' name we pray.